Hello and welcome to the Psychomedia Podcast. I am Timothy Swan. And I am Ben Fell, and together we'll be discussing the funny side of psychology. That's right. This week is our greatest episode yet. It's better than episode 50. It's better than episode 55. It's better than whatever other episodes you think are good. We are going to be storming the episodes. It's going to be amazing. It's going to be the episode of spring 2013. The most important thing for you to bear in mind right now is that this is about to be the best ever episode. And the reasons for our massive hyperbole and overhyping of this episode at the start will become apparent later on, because this week we are discussing expectations. Uh, yes, we actually took on board a listener's request for topic, like <laughs> within the week that they sent it. I know, weird, isn't it? For it's an interactive experience. If, if you're like Sam, and that's it. <laughs> yeah, only Sam. Only Sam gets to do it. He has been promoted to, like, basically writing stuff now. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> anyway, um, the place the place that you find out whether you've sent in a topic that we're actually going to cover is the feedback section. We don't have much feedback, but we have a little bit from regular listener Amber. Um, Hi, Amber. <laughs> yeah, me and Amber. Actually, yeah, this should really be my. What have I done this week? Just been like constantly talking to Amber. At Does... Weird times for her and normal times for me. <laughs> Does Amber I barely know her work? I'm not sure. Amber? I barely know her. Yeah. Yeah, but it's funnier with longer words. It is true. Obviously, the optimal XKCD one being Super Collider. Exactly. Continue. Uh, Eurasia? (laughs) Uh, Yeah, so... um, Spider? We were just discussing uh, the silliness of birds using leaves as their currency. She says, leaves are their currency. Money grows on trees and bushes, small shrubs, flowers. Mother Nature has taken control of the currency printing. Give it back to the people. Uh, so I suggested maybe birds should use worms as their new color- currency. They should go to the worm standard. That would be like if humans had chocolate money and used it as actual money. That just doesn't work. Like, Doesn't it? Also, I've got a lot of chocolate money. Or- or it would be like if humans use chocolate money for their currency, but the chocolate money was capable of running away. Well, exactly. Yeah, she pointed out that using currency that can wiggle out of your pocket would be uh, bothersome. And she pointed out that she, you know, paused a podcast of Timothy Swan to talk to Timothy Swan. And that's kind of weird. Swanception. Um, wait, wait, was... wait. I can do this. You know, if it's going to be Swanception, then it should really end with, like, some tinkling china or a crashing of someone bumping into a door. I don't have a swan, <laughs> only a goose. <laughs> right, requisite soundboard joke of the week. Done! I was uh, just going to say before you continue that uh, in, I think, the third Hitchhiker's book, maybe the fourth, there is a society that uses leaves, leaves for currency, but the inflation problem becomes such that they decide to reset the natch that like the national mint by burning down all the forests oh i don't remember that yeah the um what are they called the like the society of minage middle management hairdressers and oh like, right the uh, Gal- 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 yeah oh how exciting do you have any feedback then no you should go first well i do but you should go first i just did oh that was it yeah i know it wasn't very good wow. was it? <laughs> uninspiring much oh i'm gonna get that <laughs> neck yes you are see i can get you in trouble now too it's great uh, i do I have <laughs> keep telling yourself that anyway uh feedback sorry amber sorry i'm i'm sorry my feedback is from a real person unlike yours um <laughs> my friend ches was inside who, uh, long. who came down to visit this weekend uh said uh Oh, you when were visited I, by a monkey. <laughs> I was, I was. Uh, he, I was telling him about uh, our drive up to see you, and he pointed out that I was becoming extraordinarily middle class since I'd spend the weekend having Sunday lunch with a vicar. <laughs> and then I went on to tell him the thing that I did this week, belaboured segue not required, the thing that I did this week was go to a garden centre. <laughs> Oh, Ben. So I have now, I am now fully 100% absorbed into the middle class hive mind. Uh, yeah, you also had tea with the, the vicar, although he didn't have he tea because he hates tea. People can't understand that. You know, 
I thought uh, that was part of the job description, but especially well, especially where we used to live, where there were a lot of Asian families, they would just be, just be like, "Well, that we've only got tea, <laughs> sticky condensed milk, chai tea," and he's like, "Ah, extra milky is the worst kind of tea." Uh, yeah, wow, really, really bad vicar. Yeah. I, I mean, he, he's good at other bits of vicaring. <laughs> how, how is he on exorcism? Uh, oh, have I not told you his exorcism story? I think you probably have. Should we save it for a more appropriate episode? Well, maybe. Let's. No, 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 because it's only short. Um, that he uh, was asked by a parishioner to exercise their house, and he didn't. But he, you know, prayed over their house because only like proper exorcists can do exorcisms, and even then, they don't tend to. They're just like, let's just say a prayer, guys. Don't get like over emotional. Anyway, it turned out that the noises and weirdness inside this house were a trapped cat. And they told the local press who told The Sun. And so he was on one of the funny little news stories on page three of The Sun alongside the breasts that says, Vicar exercises cat. Uh, so, yeah. And a picture That's of a cat on like a like a, a treadmill. Uh, yeah, probably. If they were, I don't think there are pictures in that section apart from, you know, the main picture. Okay. As far as I'm aware, in my extensive if study. If you looked in the background, just behind the breasts, you could see a cat on a treadmill. And your dad okay. gesticulating furiously. Anyway... <laughs> So, yeah, there, there you go. That's his exorcism story. And that is my thing that I did this week. I went to a garden centre. Very few exorcisms were performed. We bought, like, soil and a rake and some plants and a pot. Wow. That's it fun. and It's kind of amazing, but also kind of sad. It's you know, It was quite have... exciting. It was. Particularly the bit where uh, the girlfriend nearly crashed the car. But oh, other... That was what I was going to talk to you about before the show. I had a new idea for what we should call the girlfriend. Oh, really? Better than Voltron Destroyer of Worlds? Yes. It is just the first name, only obviously with her first name in. Oh, okay. We can call it the Christina. That works too. The Christina, because we've got to keep up the mythos that she's some amazing person, because she is. We could Uh, call her La Cristina Bella, which I think she would (laughs) appreciate. Uh, Yeah, yeah. Can can I call her, like, you know, La Cristina Magnifica, which contains a less charged adjective? Well, since we don't have uh, the other person for whom we were continually coming up with nicknames around, then I don't see any reason why we shouldn't substitute in... La Bella Cristina instead. I can't remember who else we were coming up with nicknames for. Alexandra. Oh, right, yeah. But this but isn't yeah. interesting to the listeners because we're talking about people that they don't know. <laughs> so, what have you done uh, yes. this week, Tim? Um, so, uh, this week I've done very little other than playing Mass Effect 3. Hey, Ben, what was I doing when you uh, Skype called me to start the podcast? Oh, well, we, we can't tell them that, Tim. <laughs> <laughs> I was playing Mass Effect 3. Uh, yeah, I know I'm behind well, the, the kids curve, are calling it these but... days. It turns out I didn't want to lose my job and I did want to play like Star Wars The Old Republic and stuff. So I've only got it for Christmas. It's great. I've already played like, you know, 30 or 40 hours and mostly multiplayer. Um, it, it's good fun. If you've got it, like send send in your uh, yeah. origin ID. I was going to say Steam ID because I dream of a world where I could actually play EA games in Steam and then they'd work all the time. But yeah, uh, and we'll play a game, Psychomedians. I Let's keep meaning to make a Steam group, but, you know, yeah, I'm kind of lazy. Stuff. We've got so I, ta- on I take it that was your media of the week as well? No, no, no. Oh, what? No. We would have been transitioning so quickly through the phases. It would be like consummate world-class level rugby. <laughs> yes, it would. But no, uh, I have a different media of the Instead, week. Instead, it's um, like England. Yeah. <laughs> boom. Boom. Uh, yeah, I don't know if England are good at rugby at the moment or not. It's hard to tell before the Six Nations, mm-hmm. I suppose. Um, so, yeah, I don't have a belaboured segue. Um, so. Oh, wait, yeah. Mass Effect happens in space. I, I do. In I, space, Ben. Ah, uh, uh, yes. Could you hit the button, please? Uh, yes, if I can find it. Where is it? Uh, oh. There. Right. Well done. Real, real smooth there. Uh, So my my media of the week is another uh, set of YouTube videos continuing on from uh, the Zay Frank theme from last week. This is on uh, Felicia Day and Will Wheaton's uh, YouTube channel, Geek and Sundry. Why aren't they married, Ben? I know it's it's uh, well because Will is married and has kids. But anyway. They, uh, it's a really good channel. There's a bunch of really good stuff on there. And one of the things that they have put up is a show called Space Janitors, 
which is about essentially the the inevitable cleaning staff on the Death Star. It's very, very obviously featured in Robot Chicken. <laughs> as originally featured and now fleshed out by uh, Geek and Sundry, it is very, very clearly parodying Star Wars, um, more or less subtly in various places. And, you know, it is it is an internet TV show, so some of it, the production values aren't totally spot on, but overall it's pretty damn good for what is very much an indie series. And if you like Star Wars, the level of very, very clever and very, very subtle and very, very funny subversions of aspects of this that franchise are, are just wonderful to behold so i will give one example which hopefully won't be too spoilerific because it occurs right at the beginning of one episode um the main characters one of the janitors uh, enters stage right with his electric floor wiper which hums in a vaguely lightsaber like sound effect and he's just pushing it across the, the screen uh, on, on the floor, whistling to himself very slowly, nothing's happening. As he gets to about the middle of the screen, something falls past him. You don't see what it is. It just falls past him and lands with a thud on the floor. And he's sort of looks at it and then carries on sweeping for a bit. And then he gets to the middle and he looks up and the camera pans up and you see this enormous, great, like gaping, chasming, echoing shaft going upwards as far as the eye can see and he goes back down to the janitor and he keeps on sweeping and he sweeps over to the thing leans down and picks it up and it's a severed hand holding a lightsaber (laughs) Uh, and the rest of the episode is him them spent trying to work out what the laser sword or the mush mush warmer is because they use it to heat up the mush that they have for uh for food (laughs) <laughs> uh, trying to work out what it is and one of the characters gets his arms cut off repeatedly for comic effect well so that's, that's the sort of show i can get behind um mm. thinking of star wars references m- i'm guessing less than the star wars jokes made in uh, my christmas present to you ben <laughs> uh, less ridiculously in depth <laughs> they're pretty much restricted to taking making fun of the original trilogy well, yes, when the Geek Syndicate Christmas show comes out, which I'm on, there's a whole section called Sith Apprentice in which I pretend to be Darth Bane. So I do the Bane from Batman voice, but play the character of the literally like novels only and comics only Darth Bane. I'm like, this is a joke that will only be funny to about two people. And one of them is me, but I'm going to persist with it. That's pretty much the like plan of action for your stand-up act isn't it yeah yeah you're probably right it's a pity Uh, that i've never come to any of your shows yeah basically one day then one day um what is your media of the week week this week tim uh my media i hope it's the week media of the week uh no well it's about weak power as opposed to strong power no wait you call it soft and hard power because it is journey into mystery by kieran gillen my uh fashion double um, which I got my brother for Christmas and he got me the Star Wars Essentials Reader Companion and we both finished them really quickly so we could swap over before we went to university. And it deals with the reincarnation of Loki after a huge battle in Asgard that is effectively called something like Final Ragnarok or something detailed in Marvel's Siege crossover. Um, uh, Loki sacrifices himself to destroy the evil he's unleashed Uh but is reborn thanks to the power of Thor as Kid Loki, a kid who is also Loki and uh, who has a smartphone. And there's a brilliant bit in the first issue. And I, I, I shouldn't spoil some of the great jokes in there, but it is where he's on his Stark Industries smartphone. And uh, he says, these humans are weird. Uh, they keep calling me a troll. And Thor's like, but you're a half giant. He says, I told them that, but they wouldn't believe me. <laughs> and okay, I have to get this. Yeah, it's really funny, um, but really exciting as well because an evil ex-Norse god called the Serpent is planning to destroy both Earth and Asgard, but via Earth. So Odin is insisting that they have to destroy Earth before it can be used to reach Asgard. And Thor is like, um, I don't think you should do that, Dad. And Odin's like, no, I'm locking you up to prevent you stopping me. So obviously Kid Loki, despite not having the power of the original Loki, has to use his wits to help defeat the serpent uh and it ends on quite a cliffhanger in the first um volume but it is pretty exciting and oh man i really hope that they uh use like the siege that ending you describe of the siege crossover as some part of the culmination of the thor films 
that they did. Yeah, that'd be good. That'd be amazing. And it would please so many of the fan. Relatively recent books, because Iron Man 3 is based on Extremis, uh, Mm. which I think is quite recent. Captain America 2 is based on The Winter Soldier, which I think is quite recent. Um, Mm. So, yeah, I'm all... Possibility. Yeah, you know, maybe the next, you know, Avengers 3. (laughs) Or or Thor 3 or something. Yeah, yeah. Um, So, yeah, that would be exciting. It's Thor 3, I tell you. (laughs) <laughs> uh so yes you should read it i'm planning to get the second volume when i when i can um and yeah that is it for media of the week we are storming through in our greatest ever episode which is lucky because we've got like long sections to talk about yeah so I so let's crack right get it. on i will begin uh pandering to tradition with study one <laughs> Which is called The Role of Effective Affective Expectations in Subjective Experience and Decision Making, which is a really sexy title. Uh, it's by Claren Hodges and Wilson uh, and was done in 1994. Wilson! Wilson! It was a house, wasn't it? Anyway, the article begins with an anecdote about the psychologist uh, Jared Diamond, who apparently frequently travelled to New Guinea to study the local bird life. Um, prior to one particular trip, he was apparently extremely excited because he was planning to visit a completely new area of the island. However, when the vacation actually began, he ended up having a thoroughly unpleasant time, completely contrary to his high expectations. The article gives the following quote. The weather was so hot and humid that I felt myself overheating with every step. I longed to go shirtless for comfort, but didn't dare because of the clouds of mosquitoes. Spiders were crawling through my hair, stinging ants had gotten inside my underwear, and the itching of chigger bites on my private parts was driving me crazy. Tiny gnats hovered in front of my eyes, awaiting the chance to dive into my tear ducts. Bloodstains on my trousers marked the sites of fresh leech bites. So, not, not that much fun, that's the end of the quote as it's reported, although I have it on good authority that originally Diamond went on to say, Why did I even come to this parasite-ridden hellhole in the first place? I mean, the birds here look pretty much the same as the ones back home. If I wanted to see a collection of small, uninspiring brown things going tweet-tweet, I could have just looked out of my window. With the added bonus of being reasonably certain to avoid the local wildlife infesting my proceedings at the National Academy of Sciences. What kind of stupid hoddy is birdwatching anyway? If I wanted to see several hundred slightly different varieties of tit, I could just use Google Image Search. You know what? Sod this for a lark, or any other kind of passerine for that matter. I'm off to empty a tube of anthazan into a sock and hope for the best. Understandably, they didn't report that in the article, but, you know, harrowing words nonetheless. I think you'll agree. Or, or you might say, sparrowing words. Eee. Ah... What is more striking is what happened about a month or so after Diamond returned from New Guinea. Once the, you know, fever and diarrhoea had cleared up, he found himself reminiscing fondly on the holiday, weirdly. Um, Apparently the memories of, like, disease and discomfort and genital entomology were fading, and he soon found himself recalling only the positives, you know, the beauty of the landscape, the friendliness of the locals, which, according to the authors at least, raises the interesting question of whether our expectations about our uh, emotions during an experience how we think something will make us feel whether this has a significant impact on how we actually end up feeling or particularly how we remember having felt afterwards thus we come to the study which sort of sets this very question um which is kind of lucky because otherwise i'd have spent five minutes talking about a man getting insect bites on his little sigmund for no good reason anyway The authors carried out two studies, the first of which looked at students' expectations about their winter vacations, their upcoming winter vacations. Um, Just before breaking up, students in an intro to psych class were asked to fill out a questionnaire about their expectations for the upcoming holiday. Uh, On returning from the break, the participants were contacted with another questionnaire which gave them uh, in which they gave information about their actual experiences, things like was the weather okay, did your travels go smoothly, or were you bitten repeatedly on the genitals by hungry insects? Uh, They also asked more general affective questions. How good was the vacation? How relaxing? Did you enjoy it? That kind of thing. What they found was that these measures of post-experience satisfaction were significantly predicted by both the actual experience and prior expectations. Uh, But interestingly, when they considered the effect sizes, they found that the effect of prior expectations on 
like post hoc satisfaction, was much bigger than the effect of actual experience. Hmm. So uh, if someone thought that they were going to have a really amazing holiday, this had a much greater impact on whether they subsequently remembered that holiday as being awesome than whether or not the holiday was actually any good. Uh, interestingly, uh, the second questionnaire was given to participants as soon as they returned from vacation, and, but also to some of them six weeks later, and they found no difference between those groups. So it seems like these uh, kind of memory readjustments from prior expectations kick in pretty soon after the experience itself has ended. Yeah. However, remember, little psychologists, all of you, that correlation does not equal causation. Therefore, we need some kind of experimental manipulation. There's probably a poem in there somewhere to test the causality of this chain of events. And given that what we're looking at here is kind of the combination of prior expectations with actual experiences, this gives us two things that you could conceivably manipulate. You could either try and alter people's expectations or you could try and alter the actual experience that they have. Um, now, as far as I'm concerned, the first of these seems much more intuitively easy to pull off, uh, which is presumably why Clarinetal decided to do both because logic be damned. Um, so what they did in the second study was they told participants that all that was required of them was to sit and watch a short movie. Uh, half of the participants were told that the movie was really, really good. The study was fun. It was easy. It was like with the experimenters saying things like, it's not really a study at all. It's more just like going to the movies. Right. Uh, the other half of participants were just told that they were going to see a movie. Uh, the film in question was Charlie Chaplin's The Immigrant, incidentally. So in actual fact, it was like going to the movies in a time machine, which is actually quite cool. Is that what happens when you go and see a classic movie? Yes. How old does the movie have to be that it starts to invoke time travel? There's a complex equation of it uh, based on wh whether you feel slightly embarrassed watching it or not. Okay. <laughs> So then uh, any old James Bond movie, <laughs> definitely in a time pretty machine. Much. If, if there are uncomfortable levels of xenophobia or racism, then you're probably OK. Right. Excellent. Continue. <laughs> Continue. So having had uh, having had their expectations repeatedly raised uh, or had nothing at all happened to their expectations, participants were then assigned to one of two experience conditions. Uh, in the expectation match condition, they sat in a comfy chair. They were allowed to adjust their monitor and the lights and the volume all to their liking. Uh, in the non-match condition, participants had to hold their head on a chin rest. Essentially, they had their head clamped in. And then they looked at a tiny screen placed at a 45 degree angle from them. The film was also re-recorded several times so that it was degraded in quality. And the screen was set to an uncomfortable brightness and it was too quiet. So, wow. you know, that does sound pretty unenjoyable, but it would probably would have been much easier to achieve the same level of view of discomfort by just showing the film in a 3D cinema. <laughs> Boom! Version yes. two of that joke. It would have been much easier to achieve the same level of discomfort by just showing them Star Wars Episode One. Boom! Oh, yeah. This is going to be quite a Phantom Menace uh, Take that focused podcast, guys. You multi-billionaire. <laughs> Well, he's not, because he gave it all away to educational charities, like 97%. Take that, George Lucas, you surprisingly nice person. I know. All these children, he's brought joy. And, all the and then he also made some movies. <laughs> so, the results. Uh, what they found was that if people expected the film to be good, then they enjoyed it more. So that's kind of fairly intuitive. If the film experience was actually good, shock horror, they also enjoyed it more. So those are kind of the boring main effects. Critically, though, the actual experience of the film had no effect on the follow-up questionnaire, which was given three to four weeks later. Here, the only thing that predicted participants' willingness to do the study again was their initial expectations. Hmm. What's particularly interesting is that this doesn't appear to be due to any kind of selective memory, because in the follow-up questionnaire, participants were asked to recall specific positive and ne negative aspects of the experience. And for this, there was no effect to the prior expectations. Only the actual experimental condition predicted how many positive or negative aspects they recalled. Hmm. Um, so the authors suggest that if our expectations about an experience fail to match up to the reality, we see the event as some kind of anomaly. When it comes to encoding memories of that event, 
our brain has to kind of reconcile these contradictory effective states. And in doing so, it's more likely to mix up expectations with experiences. For this reason, we're more likely to base our memories of, if, you know, if there is this mis mismatch in, between expectation and reality, we're more likely to base some aspects of our memories on prior expectations. So this is exactly what happens with um, Jared Diamond with his new Guinea birdwatching debacle. He thought it was going to be great. It wasn't great. And this kind of mishmash if, is conflicted. If, if anything, you could say it was Guinea fowl. Yes, you could. This is what you're, you're like, Ben. This I know is what it's what I like. like, and I'm absolutely loving it. <laughs> <laughs> that definitely gets my seal of approval, had I a sound. Wow, it's really long, that clip. Yeah, I'll do you not have... Yeah, probably best. <laughs> we just have seals the whole rest of the time, which I'm okay with. Um, so yeah, the, the idea is that if you have this uh, mismatch between expectation and experience, it's the memory encoding goes a bit up the swanny and you get like expectations seep into your memory of the real event. They actually found some statistics to back this up. Uh, in study two, the correlation between actual enjoyment of the film and willingness to repeat the study was significantly less strong for participants whose expectations failed to match reality. So people who expected that they were going to have a good time and actually had a bad one, so like the maximum mismatch condition, the uh, correlation between actual experience and likelihood of participating in future was weakened significantly, hmm. um, suggesting that the, like, the strength of the encoding of the memory gets a bit fuzzied up, to use a technical term. Yeah. Uh, which is kind of an interesting interpretation because it seems to me like that's really evolutionarily stupid. Like, imagine you're a primitive hunter-gatherer and you eat some berries which you expect to be tasty and nutritious. If said berries cause you to go blind and have one of your legs fall off, what you really don't want is to find yourself three months later only able to recall the fact that they actually did taste quite nice. It's, yeah. It doesn't seem very adaptive. Yeah. Which is kind of odd because most psychology articles these days throw in a kind of post hoc cobbled together evolutionary adaptation argument for it and i couldn't really come up with one for this yeah well i might investigate that in my forthcoming study not oh. one i'm doing just one i'm discussing in future but oh, okay well, carry on discussing your bits first no 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 i think that that's pretty much it so uh okay it, the conclusion to that is it, at the very least it seems like our expectations about an event have a significant impact on how we subsequently remember enjoying it. But obviously, you know, it, anecdotal evidence tells us that this is not always the case. To return to episode Star Wars Episode 1, people were probably quite excited about going to see that in the first place. I'm not oh, yeah. quite the right generation to have that, but that's, you know, maybe there's some kind of extreme rebound effect where if the expectations are so completely trashed that you get this like vitriolic backlash i don't know but well, i kind of differ from that because i have seen it more times than i should have done and each time i seem to go back to it without thinking no that's a terrible idea well, there we um, go that's, that's what that shows yeah that shows is that there's individual differences So my study... <laughs> oh, why are they on the wrong side? I keep expecting the, the buttons to be in different places. This is why I can't fly a submarine. Oh, you got the one with the hooter on it. Nice. Yeah, apparently. <laughs> anyway, um, yeah. So the Wilson uh, from the studies that uh, Ben has just discussed came up with a theory called the effective expectation model, which suggests that expectations either lead to assimilation, as Ben's just discussed, or contrast. So they either highlight or cover up how an experience differs from expectations. And this particular study by Gears and Lassiter looked to investigate such things experimentally, because clearly after the study Ben's discussed, some contradictory evidence have been found. So obviously, looking at why people like objects and enjoying experiences started with the intrinsic qualities of the item, and then other qualities present at the time of the experience, like environmental conditions, which is sort of what happened, I guess, with that film. Intrinsically, the film is good because it's a Charlie Chaplin film, but the environmental conditions were bad. Mm. And Which is easier to manipulate than like actually getting people to watch Star Wars Episode One because then you have you know, taste differences Sport. between the films. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but then they moved on to this question of 
expectations, especially affective expectations, predictions of what we think our emotional states will be. And the examples they give in Gears and Lasseter are how funny you think a movie will be, how much you think you will dislike a restaurant, how much you think you will enjoy a CD, and how anxious you think you will feel while being interviewed for a job. Ah, 2003, where we couldn't see the hege- hege- Oh, man. I shouldn't write a script that I can't do, should I? Hege- hegemonic dominance. So in that case, you shouldn't write a script. Oh, yeah, you're right. My pronunciation is so bad. How did I become a podcast of Ben? <laughs> when we couldn't see how significant MP3s would become, and the death of HMV was just a fever dream. Actually, at that point, we even still had Virgin Megastores. Uh, you know, they hadn't even turned into Zavi, which only happened in 2007. Uh, incidentally, Zavi only went bust because Woolworth's distribution network went under. You know, 2003, when St. Hilda's was still a female-only college. It's like the, the domino effect on the high street. I wonder if St. Hilda's went mixed gender because of, like, the lack of Woolworth's distribution network. <laughs> <laughs> well, you've got the sort of things that Woolworth sells that are essential to female students and I guess there's pick and mix is that essential to female students I think that's essential to all students uh, yeah it probably is it anyway, was to me I was more the kind of you know raw icing kind of guy <laughs> explains it a lot <laughs> yes it does and basically so the way expectations work is apparently this our expectations set an effective readiness and if the experience matches this, we don't really bother to process it properly. We just yeah. let expectations stand for the experience. So it's kind of heuristic versus systematic processing, as usual. When it doesn't match, <laughs> what happens is not whether people notice. Uh, if they don't, they just think it was in line with their expectations, regardless of the mismatching information. But if they do, they'll move away from the expectations. So, so far, mm. so obvious. Um, whether something is noticed supposedly depends on the magnitude of the difference. But clearly... That can't just be it, because the magnitude of the difference was pretty huge in the original Wilson study. Mm. So I think this this that interpretation that you've just outlined there is what I thought I was going to read at the end of the my Wilson paper. Yeah, but I was kind of surprised to find that it wasn't like they, it's a subtly different variation on that. Yeah, and I feel I, I get the impression that maybe the the Wilson study that you're talking about is what they kind of, the the theory they want to put forward well yeah and I mean, that they felt like in it did feel a little bit like in the 94 paper that i just talked about when it came to their discussion that the results didn't quite go the way they expected them to and they were kind of trying to cobble together something which was as close as possible to their theory well we might be able to explain this using the research of gears and Lester, but yeah the model was come up with by wilson in 1989 so clearly the 94 paper is trying to fit things to a model anyway so the examples to explain the way these kind of expectations work when i saw inception i was expecting it to be amazing and then it was amazing and i didn't need to process it any further mm. when i first saw the phantom menace aged 10 uh, there wow. were obviously things wrong with it but not enough things that I at the time could process them. So it just assimilated with my expectations and expectations that were, for example, set by the trailer, which even Peter Serafinovich, a noted critic of the film, recently pointed out is still an amazing trailer. Mm. Now, I'm not so sure I had a good example of a film I expected to be good that turned out to be bad. I've not seen Prometheus. I like the Matrix sequels. I know. I do my (laughs) best to see the good in uh, Star Wars prequels. I suppose the other way around, I could pick a film like Bedazzled, the remake with uh, Brendan Fraser, where all my expectations were that it would be absolutely terrible, but it was actually quite funny. And it Mm. turns out that Brendan Fraser can make anything good, even if Liz Hurley is his (laughs) co-star. So the other way... Literally the devil. Yeah, yeah. Her and Cristiano Ronaldo are kind of the male and female. Actually... (laughs) Man, that's a power couple I'd hate to see. <laughs> I think that's a power couple no one wants to see, but she clearly likes, like, terrible, arrogant sportsmen, given that she's, like, in a relationship with Shane Warne. <laughs> anyway, uh, the other way in which people might notice contrast, they suggest, is by paying lots of attention. And as usual, as I say, it's a divide between systematic, i.e. really thorough, conscious thought through, and heuristic, quick, cognitively easy, but quite subconscious, low-level processing. And Gears and Laster had a way of manipulating this in a previous study, which is called unitization, which weirdly, MS Word actually recognises that quite technical word. I've been watching a lot of Dead Space videos recently, and that's dangerously close to unitology. (laughs) We may be all about to turn into horrible necromorphs. Okay, well, let's see if this joke does that. Uh, It reminds me of uh, a joke. What do you call it when college students all agree to have a hot beverage? I don't know, Tim. What do you call it when college students all agree to have a hot beverage? Uni tea. 
<laughs> well, I guess it didn't turn me into a necromorph. Uh, no, but that's just talk- how I laugh. <laughs> yeah, it's a good thing I've not said anything funny on the whole, you know, fifty-seven episodes of the podcast thus far. Yes, it's been- the sound of me going <laughs> is actually like that's your deep-seated agony noise (laughs) yeah well with all this talk of assimilation i wanted to fit in a borg joke but i don't know or care enough about star trek so (laughs) anyway uh unitization too borging yeah unitization is where you break up a sequence into its units of action and you can do it grossly or finely uh grossly like the noise ben just made finally obviously (laughs) (laughs) best episode ever Um, they gave their participants an unfunny film clip and either a positive or neutral expectation when they what they expected was that the fine unitizers would notice the contrast but not (laughs) exactly uh and that was what happened so what they're doing this particular <laughs> that or all oh, right never mind sorry carry on. <laughs> too much that, derailing yeah 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 um you know train crash levels here um <laughs> what they're doing in this study is introducing individual differences so and what we're getting to hopefully maybe is what i call the hipster impulse although maybe not quite um Cacioppo, who i had heard of before in my studies of emotion and i looked up Cacioppo on my computer to find what i'd written about him you know for my degree and he has a, a review article about emotion that helpfully says that the relationship between physical feelings and emotions are some are some aren't some are a bit and all in different ways <laughs> helpful thank Thanks, you Cacioppo. <laughs> just because you sound like a pokemon doesn't mean you have to take it out on the rest of us <laughs> i thought you sounded like a type of coffee that you know you get in the expensive shops anyway yeah. Uh, I'm sure that's racist against Italian people more than your comment. Um, I mean, it was helpful in an area where some people were like, no, emotions only function in one single way. But it's still not that great. Anyway, um, Cacioppo came up with this theory of need for cognition. Basically, that there are individual differences in the tendency to think things through and process them systematically. So, obviously, people high in need for cognition should be more sensitive to contrast with expectations. And Cacioppo basically believes that people high in need for cognition are great at everything. It's quite quite important to note that um, need for cognition spelt with an N uh, is what you describe. Need for cognition spelt with a K is when you massage someone's brain in order to make them think faster. Oh, yes. Okay. Certainly. <laughs> well, you do sometimes rub your head when you're thinking hard, so maybe yeah, that's, that's what, where the idea that's came from. Needing for cognition. Uh, now, Gears and Lassiter, who seem to be quite obsessed with unitization, have also found that high need Necromorphs. <laughs> which I might abbreviate NFC, uh, as well as try and pitch as a slightly left-field sequel for the Need for Speed franchise, have minor <laughs> unitization. Wow. Because of this, remember more. Oh, there'll be more later of that. If they, if they want to do that, they're going to need to fire Dwayne Johnson right away. I mean, I love the guy. <laughs> yeah, you're thinking of Fast and Furious. The Need for Speed movie isn't out yet. But there have been like 19 installments in the game franchise, at least. Um, so they did two studies to collide all of this stuff together in the ideas blender. Um, they got participants both high and low in NFC and gave them positive, negative. Uh, so going further than the study. Good. Scott, Excellent. Been waiting for that. Or no expectations and then showed them two unfunny film clips. Obviously, there was a contrast in the positive expectation condition and they predicted the high NFC would notice and the low NFC would not and then thus just assimilate the experience with their expectations and they included the negative very sensibly because they expected that it could be argued that high nfc individuals just go contrary to externally provided expectations regardless of whether they're inaccurate or not so that is the hipster impulse that i'm so desperate to discover (laughs) so the positive praise that set up the expectation was pretty extreme in this study you will watch a portion of a classic movie that is very popular the particular movie that you are about to see has won many awards and has received much praise from other students the negative one was as strong but not as strong wait did i say strong but not as strong i can't remember although the particular movie that you're about to see has been described as boring and tedious by other students it only lasts approximately five minutes so neutral got no prompting uh, they were all told this was a study on the psychology of film appreciation and then on top of this they showed a 30 second video of someone who had supposedly done the experiment already talking about how much they liked or disliked the film 
So then they were given one of two films. They were both black and white and silent, one called Don't Shove and one called City Lights. And they asked how enjoyable, funny and pleasant the film was, and then some cover questions about film behaviour, and finally a manipulation check. And of course they also gave Cacioppo's NFC scale uh, some before the study and some afterwards to hopefully avoid it manipulating the amount of attention people paid. So, the results showed no no gender differences. Um, The time of the uh, NFC scale didn't have an effect, and there was no effect of different film clips, so they just collapsed those variables. The manipulation check showed that both the positive and the negative manipulations worked in the appropriate direction, and they were using a multiple regression model rather than grouping the data and doing anniversary. And I'd probably do both personally, but hey, let's see what the results they've got. I'm aware that we criticised people recently for doing median splitting, but surely Cacioppo gave some thresholds when he came up with the scale of high and low NFC. Anyway, the act- I, I'm sure he did, but don't call me Shelley. <laughs> uh, firstly, the negative expectations group enjoyed the film less than the neutral, regardless of need for cognition, just as predicted. And so that was the first significant step in the regression model. The second significant step was that positive expectations led to an increase in enjoyment for low need for cognition and the reverse for high need for cognition, just as predicted. And there were no other significant steps in the model. Very sensibly, they checked for mediation. Mediation, in case you've forgotten, and I often do, is the idea that there's a middle variable influenced by one that then influences the other. For example, Russianness of football chairman leads to increased success at football, but only via the mediating factor of having lots of oil money from the pro-Soviet assets grab. <laughs> Had to pronounce that correctly. Mm. I, I, I heard pro-Soviet acid crab, so... <laughs> <laughs> Which is just like a little... That's like you a, know, a little Russian crab who is seriously tripping balls, you know, man. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I would watch that animated TV show. <laughs> I, have you seen the, just the brilliant episode of The Simpsons where they import the uh, Soviet-Russian remake of Itchy and Scratchy? <laughs> no. Favorite, like itchy and scratchy episodes and it's just like completely bizarre animation and them shouting at each other and just like it's great i'll put it in the show notes if i can find it anyway um yeah they basically checked whether the level of expectation in the participants was a mediating variable but it wasn't it was just the manipulation and the individual differences influencing the outcome but you've got to check so well done to them one last weird result was that in the no expectation condition those with higher NFC liked the film more. Well, why might that be? Well, apparently, the more information you take on board about something, the more you like it. So each time you listen to this show, you like us more, psychology more, and bad puns more. <laughs> so, study two was doing basically the same thing with a much more covert measure of affect. They also dropped the negative condition, having already shown that high and low no need for cognition react the same to it which might be questionable but experiments are hard and making them easier is worthwhile at least for you know the effort of the scientists <laughs> so they used a thought listing technique where after the task they had to write down what thoughts they remember having during the film which are then coded for affect 57 percent of those items were non-effective which suggests the participants would not know that it was the aim of the exercise and the two coders who coded them had high agreement so they gave them the need for cognition questionnaire again and there were no effects of gender or film clips so into the proper results again the manipulation check showed the manipulation worked and the regression model found that only the interaction between need for cognition and positive expectations explained the results which is what was predicted so their mediation analysis came up with marginally significant results so i'll just ignore them once again with a covert measure of affect need for cognition underlies the impact of expectations on enjoyment so it seems that high need for cognition individuals contrast in a lot of areas to mostly social cognition but there are still thresholds of difference Hmm. they do suggest a couple of alternative explanations that low need for cognition do notice but don't bother correcting their opinion or aren't confident enough to correct their opinion and voice it but other research in the field does not suggest those things to be the case and obviously when it comes to applying this stuff it's consumerism to which they go advertising has basically already won because like jedi mind tricks it's effective on the weak-minded <laughs> well, low nfc weak-minded pretty similar at least according to <laughs> Um, Stormtroopers notoriously have low need for cognition. Yeah, essentially. And what they've got to think about is their audience, which is why calling Looper this generation's Matrix is a bad idea. But if you describe, you know, the new Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles film as from the director of the Transformers trilogy, that will probably work. (laughs) That is the end of Need for Cognition. 
Awesome. Well, I will stop trying to Photoshop a communist crab and uh, tell you about study two. I think you're going to be impressed with the results when they finally come out. Uh, I actually surprised you with the communist crab. Uh, basically, it's uh, I found a picture already of a, a statue of a metal crab, which instead of pincers has a hammer and a sickle. Oh, excellent. <laughs> Raised in salutation, but what can very easily be uh, reinterpreted is reinterpreted as staring at his claws going dude my claws are so big <laughs> i mean dude the claws are so big in soviet russia <laughs> crabs pinched by you <laughs> in soviet russia balls are tripping on you <laughs> uh, yes okay let's get on with the psychology <laughs> so study two uh, the Future is Now, Temporal Correction in Effective Forecasting, which is quite a sexy title um, and is a very sexy article, actually. I really enjoyed reading this one. Uh, it's by Daniel Gilbert, uh, Michael Gill and Timothy Wilson. Again, I think, possibly. Uh, yeah, Tim Wilson popping up everywhere. So, yes, uh, the article opens with the following quote, which I will read to you verbatim because it's awesome. Few of us have experienced a glass of Chateau Cheval Blanc 47 or a mouthful of termites. But most of us <laughs> but most of us would choose between the two with considerable confidence because most of us can predict how each of these gustatory experiences would feel. Indeed, we make predictions about the subjective quality of future experiences so easily and so naturally that we generally do not think about these predictions until they go awry. You know, I see the author's point here, but... Unfortunately, his example is somewhat undermined by the fact that the 47 Cheval Blanc actually goes remarkably well with a platter of coal-roasted termites. Uh, <laughs> I mean, it, it has these signature notes of motor oil, rust, and dirty nightclubs, which complement the carroty flavour of the insects wonderfully. Interesting side note, all the flavours described above are accurate, or at least they are terms that have used to been, been used to describe a 47 Cheval Blanc and a plate of termites. I think, really? I think what, it's... By you just no, now? No, by registered wine critics on the internet. I think it's a pretty poor reflection of the state of wine tasting notes that the description of what is commonly regarded as the greatest wine of the 20th century makes it sound utterly unpalatable, while the description of a plate of disgusting bugs sounds quite crunchy and refreshing, really. Apparently, the 47 Cheval Blanc's signature taste is motor oil. Right. So, I haven't tasted motor oil, but I'm pretty confident, again, that I can predict that that would be bad. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, that's their opening. Anyway, the hypothesis is that when you make a hedonic decision about the future, that is, a decision that will affect your future pleasure, uh, one tends to ignore the temporal aspect of the decision. So when we go shopping, what we're actually thinking about is what we'd like to eat right now, rather than what we are likely to want to eat in a week's time. This is perhaps why I always find myself ordering more than I can ever possibly eat when we get takeaway, because I'm always really hungry when I order and it all looks tasty. But when I'm halfway through my first of seven large pizzas and I'm now completely full, it stops looking tasty and starts looking like a horrific mounting of oozing fat and processed animal parts. Um... Just, you know, just 26 percent horse. Exactly. Just like those pictures you see where people take really, really, really close up photographs of like sausages or burgers in high definition. And suddenly you never, ever want to eat meat again for like two minutes. <laughs> uh, photos and there are a lot of smug vegetarians and vegans out there today. I can tell you that I'm smugger than usual. Yeah. So, uh, yes. Anyway, I quite like um I quite like a lot of this article, in particular uh, these bits on how Gilbert Adel discuss the way humans make future decisions. They use this term forecasting by proxy to describe how we try to imagine how something will make us feel in the future by thinking about how it would make us feel now. And they illustrate this point brilliantly with the following example. If we wish to predict how we feel upon finding our spouse in bed with the letter carrier on New Year's Eve, we might imagine the event and then take note of how we react to the mental image. Because real and imagined events activate many of the same neural and psychological processes, reactions to imaginary events can provide useful information about one's likely reaction to events themselves. If, 
the mental image of rapid breathing and flailing mailbags induces pangs of jealousy and waves of anger, then we m- may properly expect a real infidelity to do so with even greater intensity. I think that's wonderful. Why do they choose the letter carrier? It makes him sound like a rubbish superhero. Well, Unlike the postman, which makes him sound like an amazing superhero. Well, we'll we'll have a few more quotes and then we'll decide if this is merely a coincidental and chance example or something more deep seated. <laughs> so go on. Uh, Gilbert goes on to point out that uh, this doesn't this uh, forecasting by proxy doesn't always work too well because partly because we often conflate our current hedonic state with our future ones. So if we shop when hungry, we buy too much. But also partly because our imagination, being dependent as it is on visual information, isn't very good at representing the temporal component of a situation. It's quite difficult to represent time visually, with a few exceptions, you know, clocks, calendars. And more often than not, we don't include representations of time in our mental images. To quote the authors again. You never see a clock in the dream, they say. Yeah. I don't know if it's true. I don't know, but yeah, good example. So, to quote the authors again, discovering an infidelity on New Year's Eve looks very <laughs> much like discovering an infidelity on Purim, Halloween, or Russian Orthodox Easter. <laughs> Overly Man, that is a multicultural family it of uh, promiscuous people. <laughs> Indeed. A moment's introspection reveals that one's mental image of the event finding one's spouse in bed with a letter carrier on New Year's Eve changes dramatically when one substitutes barber for spouse or conversation for bed, but not when one substitutes Thanksgiving for New Year's Eve. In short, images represent who, what and where much more easily than when. I'm not sure that... I think this is a spurious argument. I'm not sure that substituting barber for spouse really changes it all I mean, you're angry, but you're not betrayed. You're freaked out, aren't you? He's just a barber. I expect celibacy from my barbers. It's a very serious profession. It's barbaric as well. That's why I haven't haven't had a haircut in like 10 years. None of my barbers meet my heart standards. That's not because of your standards. That's because no barber wants to risk losing all their scissors. (laughs) So, finally... Uh, Gilbert argues that when temporal information is considered, it tends to be as an afterthought, kind of moderating your decisions slightly, but not actually fundamentally changing their outcome. Thus, when a man predicts how you feel if you were to catch his wife in flagrante delecto on New Year's Eve or Christmas, he may initially imagine the two events identically, experience identical hedonic reactions, and hence generate identical predictions. Only after generating these preliminary predictions, such as I'd be angry for months, might he consider information about the temporal location of the event. You know, people do all sorts of foolish things on New Year's Eve and then use that information to correct or adjust his forecast. So maybe I'd just be angry for weeks. Although his reactions to the actual event may well depend on the time at which it happens, for example, it may be worse to experience betrayal on a holiday that symbolises family and religion than on a holiday famous for ribaldry and intoxication, he may consider these differences only as an afterthought. At this point, I'd like to take a moment to address Daniel Gilbert directly. Did she hurt you, Daniel? It's okay, you can tell us. We're friends here. That cheating harlot wasn't good enough for you. She didn't deserve you, Daniel. There's plenty more fish in the sea, Daniel. Don't worry. But listen, peer-reviewed journals aren't really the best mediums for venting your anger. So maybe try getting in touch with a therapist and also coming up with some other examples. (laughs) It's okay, Daniel. It's okay. Uh, I just want to know what this says about Brian Parkinson using the Harry Potter examples so frequently. (laughs) Or Ed... Uh, Ed Rolls using his own papers so commonly. Anyway, (laughs) so uh, on with the science. Gilbert et al. found just enough time between throwing darts at pictures of their ex-wives to run two studies. In the first, they asked participants to rate how much they would enjoy eating spaghetti either tomorrow morning or tomorrow afternoon. That is, tomorrow from when they ran the experiment, not tomorrow as in Thursday the 16th of January 2013, or if you're listening to this on Friday, Saturday the 18th of January 2013, or tomorrow from whenever you're actually listening to this. You see how difficult it is to represent temporal information. <laughs> like Douglas Adams says, when you start talking about time travel, mental or otherwise, human language really needs to invent a few more tenses. So, they asked participants to predict whether they'd enjoy eating spaghetti tomorrow. See above. And also how, <laughs> how hungry they were right now. 
see above. Finally, they got some participants to do a some of the participants to do a cognitively demanding tone detection task whilst making their judgments because of some evidence which suggests that cognitive load would negatively impact upon your ability to make temporal corrections. And the results were pretty clear. For participants under cognitive load, uh, as in participants doing the difficult task, the prediction about future spaghetti enjoyment was significantly predicted by current hunger. Not, but not at all by the time at which the spaghetti was to be eaten. So it didn't matter whether you suggested eating spaghetti for breakfast or for dinner. If the person was hungry and doing the complex task, they would want spaghetti. And if the person wasn't hungry and doing the complex task, they wouldn't want spaghetti. The reverse was true for the non-busy participants, the non-cognitively loaded participants, whose hunger had no effect whatsoever, but who seemed readily capable of predicting that they would prefer spaghetti in the afternoon rather than in the morning. Uh, so, that study one seems pretty straightforward. They also did a second study in which they surveyed participants in a grocery store. So this is kind of going back to the idea of if you if you shop when you're hungry, maybe you'll buy more stuff. Yep. They, so they, they asked participants coming into the grocery stores to participate, and if they agreed, the first thing they did was to uh, ascribe them to either a, sati- a satiated condition or a non-satiated condition. So they sated the participants before they began shopping, and they did this by giving them a delicious muffin and then asking to rate said muffin. This is actually a standardised ma- manipulation of satiety. If you ever want to satisfy someone's hedonic urges, give them a good muffin. <laughs> yeah, I know you have to substitute your own laughter in there. <laughs> I do it gladly. <laughs> Genuinely. Sorry. Just thinking about the song from uh, 30 Rock. Uh, have you seen 30 Rock? I haven't. Is there a song about muffin in it? There's um, one of the characters does a song about uh, their muffin top that becomes a, a kind of gay icon tune. It's great. I'll put it in the show notes. That's amazing. So that's what I think about when I think about muffins, which probably says my priorities are a bit wrong. I'm kind of hungry right now, so I'm just thinking about a muffin. But anyway, uh, so they manipulated satiety uh, with muffin. And secondly, they uh, manipulated temporal correction by asking participants to list the items that they needed for the coming week. And then half the participants were given their list to reference while they did their shopping. And the other half had the list taken away, basically. I don't know about YouTube, but I could not carry out a weekly shop without a list. So I think that's kind of... I, I, I think I tried a couple of times in Oxford and it did not go well. <laughs> so uh, when the participants had finished doing their shopping, they checked their actual purchases using this as kind of the dependent variable in the study and looked at particularly at the number of planned versus unplanned purchases. They found that for shoppers who went without a list... The number of unplanned purchases depended on their level of hunger. So those people who were given a muffin bought less unplanned things. They were better able to kind of you uh, cognitively predict what they were going to actually want in future. Sure. On the other hand, participants who did have a list to refer to bought the same number of unplanned items regardless of their level of hunger. So giving them this kind of crutch to temporal correction, the list... Uh, allowed them to more effectively control their current hedonic urges, i.e. their level of hunger. Okay, yeah. Uh, So, I guess our Psychomedia top tip, really, is don't shop hungry, always bring a list, and if in doubt, get someone to give you a muffin. Yeah, that's great. Don't steal them, though. No. Well, I mean, I'm sure if you listen to our Crime and Punishment episode, you can find out how to get off from stealing a muffin, but... I always get off from stealing. Not like that. (laughs) Right. Is that your conclusion then? That is my conclusion. Okay. So more delicious psychology for us. I certainly one minute and thirty seconds. (laughs) (laughs) That's not strictly true. Anyway, um, so given that we were trying to talk about hype as well as uh, expectations, um, part of what generates hype isn't just expectations given to us by critics, the media and advertising, but also from our friends. So at the moment, I have a million Facebook friends talking about how much they love Les Mis, and that's bound to be setting up some kind of hype for when I see it. The social norm set by my peer group is to like the movie. 
and I probably will. It's a musical I kind of like. I've seen it live and so forth. Anyway, Chang and Sanfei wanted to find the neuroscience behind social norms, which was previously unknown. And they start with an interesting line, at least interesting to me. Uh, behaving socially appropriately, routinely, requires the ability to accurately infer what others expect of us. And I would add that, as we discussed last week, it also requires a willingness to act on those expectations. I know that Ben expects me to try and not get him in trouble with the Christina, to laugh at his puns and to not derail his sections of psychology repeatedly. And I want to do all of these things most of the time. Anyway, real social expectations generally focus on equality. Though this can apparently be tempered by nobility, that is, making an effort towards equality even if this is not achieved, and adjusted by typicality, if we know everyone seems to be acting unfairly, we're more tolerant towards it. So, let's play some of these economic games with social expectations, and let's do them with fMRI. Hooray! Um, so, they got 18 participants, excluded one for technical reasons, uh, turned out to be a magnetic supervillain, uh, screened them for the usual confounds, and then they did the ultimatum game which is where player one splits some money and then player two accepts or declines. If player two accepts, they get some money. And if player two declines, no one gets anything. Obviously, the game, if you were playing it... And a child it, dies. <laughs> yeah. Um, it, the game is to come up with an unfair amount that will still be accepted, like a 60-40 split if you were playing this game. But obviously, you can give a range of splits to a participant as player two and see what factors will adjust the acceptance threshold. So the pot in this case was $10, nice round number, and they pre-tested what the participants' expectations were by asking them how many people out of 100 would be expected to give the various dollar splits. And if they got a pointless answer, they won $250. Our survey says Tim made that last bit up. Um, <laughs> they played the game with supposedly three types of players humans, computers, and humans who get assigned a random split. And each game was preceded by a picture of the players. And I've got some samples of the computer players in the show notes. Mm -hmm. uh, obviously, no one was really playing. Psychologists never let you play multiplayer. Just the <laughs> illusion of multiplayer. All the amounts were sent by the psychologist. Uh, and they did not query whether people suspected this, but no one raised the question in debriefing, and the results matched patterns found in experiments done without deception. Obviously, in this experiment with the computer players, they had to use both deception and decepticons. <laughs> so they tested participant responses in terms of two models. The expectation model, that anger and thus rejection come from social norms, in which case I need to persuade eligible bacheloresses that dating me is not outside the social norms, and the other model is the inequality aversion model, which means that objectively unfair offers will be rejected. So they also did an fMRI. They tested the responses to increasingly unfair offers, as well as the different responses to a $3 offer by people with different expectations. Behaviourally, Participants obviously increasingly rejected more unfair offers, but after controlling for this, the higher the expectation, the greater the rejection. In other words, social norms and expectations had a significant effect separate from objective unfairness. The expectation model was a better fit for the data than the simple inequality aversion model. And in terms of the fMRI, there was increased activity in the insular, left anterior cingulate cortex and the pre-supplementary motor area that increased with greater violation of expectations. There was no differential activation for breaking expectations in a positive direction, which is kind of interesting. They don't really investigate it. Um, when they used the model in some magical predictive way, it was found that the key areas were the left anterior cingular cortex, the supplementary motor area, and the precentral gyrus. And basically the point of this is that the first bit also identifies the parts involved in spotting inequality, whereas the model-based one shows up the areas that are just involved in spotting expectation violation. Now, the anterior cingulate, when it's not telling off old man amygdala for being racist, <laughs> is key in pretty much all expectations. Expectations of aversive events, of novel events, placebo effects, social prediction and conformity to expectations. There is evidence it weighs the balance of individual preferences and social norms, and clearly mine doesn't do a very good job of stopping me favouring my individual preferences. Now, previous research by this group has shown that people are motivated by guilt to avoid disappointing a relationship partner, a process also underwritten by the ACC, Insular and SMA. They believe that a similar emotional signal, though concerning another's behaviour rather than the self, is the basis of the responses in this study. And this builds on work in pure emotional study, showing that violations of social norms lead to anger against others and guilt against the self. So coming back to hype, we can feel guilty when we break the social norm. Like me, 
liking The Phantom Menace and angry when others do, like when I hear my pod mistress Maxie saying that Batman and Robin is the best Batman film. <laughs> our decisions in an emotional context are influenced by the context of our expectations of what we think the sociable, the socially acceptable thing to do or think is. And that's that. It's underlined by pretty standard mo- emotional areas. Um, but there you go. That's part of the way in which your expectations are created naturalistically because i guess a lot of the other studies we've done have been about false creations of expectation huh there we go yeah so what conclusions can we draw overall about hype and expectations uh that communist crabs are tripping balls uh, yeah, definitely. Uh, really what uh, I'm focusing on right now. Um, okay. Looper shouldn't have been so overhyped. Uh, always bring a list and a muffin. Just in general, in life. Uh, no, seriously, um, if you actually pay attention to things, then the hype won't unduly influence you. But if you don't, you'll just remember the hype. Uh, so why didn't more people like Prometheus? Maybe the differences were so big it overwhelmed the heuristic processing. You really do pronounce it funny, don't you? Heuristic. How how do you pronounce it? Heuristic. You know, like it's pronounced. Heuristic. How do you get hoy from H E U? Um, Well, there's no other words with H E U in it. I don't know. It just the vaguely there is in French. Yeah, but I don't speak French, do I? I speak German, and in German it's heuter. That's what it is. It's German. Heuter is H E U, and heuter. So heuristic. So it's because of French and German, and it's so we don't get it right either of us. I actually think think that heuristic sounds better, but yeah. Alas, I am programmed by my evil French overlords. (laughs) Yeah, late blouse. Yeah, so. if, if you enjoyed hearing a coherent episode on a topic triggered by a listener, you can get in contact with us and maybe it will happen again in about 58 episodes time. <laughs> Who knows? It, stranger things have happened, including yep. communist crabs. Uh, you can email us at uh, psychomediapodcast at gmail.com. Uh, you can go on Facebook, facebook.com slash psychomedia. That's the fan page. It gets all the bonus stuff that doesn't make it into the show notes for either me forgetting or for technical reasons. You can tweet us on Twitter with, yeah, but with uh, at, at Team Psychomedia. Yeah, it's not an at, at yet. Um, I was trying to think of other words beginning with TW and ending in T, and then I had to stop doing that. Okay, yeah, great. This podcast has already already become not clean in France, so. <laughs> I don't think we have that many French listeners. Just stay away from the Portuguese profanity for our Portuguese and Brazilian listeners. What is? But anyway, carry on. <laughs> Mild xenophobia. Um, well, their, their meat is perfectly acceptable. Anyway, um, sorry. Um, what was I going to say? Oh, yes. Um, that. Um, Why are horses? Go to the uh, WordPress page, com, where you get all the pictures, the videos. You can comment there. Uh, that is a good place for us to actually get like long and detailed comments that actually lead to good suggestions. Um, and that's it. Until next week, we will say goodbye. Next week's episode is probably not going to be that great remember don't expect the unexpected because then you'll always be bored yeah or something i don't know bye 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 need for cognition welcome to the madness productions present in association with wttm studios vienna the latest installment in the mind racing game franchise that has broken every record need for cognition it's a battle between the slow-witted and the quick-witted a race to get as much information as possible as processing becomes cis with fine unitization at its highest level yet need for cognition is the most hyped game of spring 2013 buy at our online store to get the digital deluxe edition with inclusive ACDLC and get racing streets ahead for your heuristic processing friends Go, 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 go.